Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Green Welcome Lane podcast. I am thrilled to be joined by the incredible, dare I say legendary, <laughs> writer, Mr. Charles Austin today. Chuck, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. It is a, it is a weird post-COVID world we're living in as we delve into the fall of 2022. How has life been for you uh, through this crazy pandemic? Um, super strange. I mean, it's isolated like everybody. Um, but it ha- the isolation hasn't really ended. A lot of uh, a lot of the people that I work for still tend to do most of their business by Zoom. And um, I spent last week getting my son set up at college. And even though he's got classes, he's even though he's on campus, he still does a lot of his classes by Zoom. So it's weird. It's very strange. I'm not. I'm. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to adjust to it. I I work as a therapist in my day job, and I feel like a lot of the therapy I've done in the last few years is just kind of helping people figure out where they are now. Uh, I think our relationships with travel and home and work have all changed, and we're all kind of still figuring out what that means. It's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I I I went through the thing that a lot of people went through, where I started reevaluating every aspect of my life because I had way too much time to think, and uh, you know, career and and career choices and all that. So I was actually surprised to find out that I wasn't the only one. That there were a lot, a lot of people that were going through those, you know, questioning periods. I feel like I feel like it kind of hit the whole planet, and I uh, I recognize my privilege regularly. I have a home to work in, and <laughs> I don't have to share yeah. with other people. Or, uh, but yeah, it's been a crazy time, uh, even raising kids. Do you just have the one son? Uh, I have, have a son and uh, my ex-wife, I, I helped her raise her two, uh, two stepdaughters. So I have two ex-stepdaughters, I guess. Is that the way you describe it? But Sure, sure. And then uh, your son is off to college now. That's got to be crazy. He is. He's uh, he's adjusting pretty well, but um, you know, it's it's like one day is is awesome, the greatest thing ever, and the next day is a total freak out because he doesn't have laundry detergent. You know, <laughs> <laughs> did I teach him how to make macaroni and cheese or not? I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I did actually get a call late the other night. How do you, how do you make your macaroni and cheese? So that actually happened. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I uh, so I'm based in Salt Lake City. I'm not quite sure where you are. Uh, are you close to your kid? Do you get to stay in close contact? Yeah, I'm only about uh, about an hour and a half drive away. Okay. So, yeah, you can, close. you can come home and do laundry when he needs to. Then if he really needs to, yeah. It's all good. <laughs> so I uh, I've been doing uh, X Men podcasting for a couple of years. I'm a previous uh, Marvel Handbooks writer uh, and a published oh. author. I've been reading Marvel comics for years, and uh, I have read your run a couple of times. But I got to do a full reread of it this last uh, this last c- uh, couple of weeks in preparation for this interview. Uh, and it was really fun to go back and read some comics I hadn't read in a long time, especially all the way through. You were on the book for uh, for quite some time. I kind of want to start out today. Tell us a little bit about your career leading up to the X-Men. I know it's been some time since you wrote the book. Uh, and tell us a little bit about what you've done uh, prior and then uh, a segue into you know how you got the gig writing for X-Men in the first place. Okay. Um... Uh, my career has been really weird and varied. Um, I've done everything from be a security guard to uh, scrape the gum off the floor at Woolworths when there used to be a Woolworths. So um, I, uh, but I, I, my career has been, once I got out of college, I started working as an assistant to a illust- uh, professional illustrator and then illustration started dying up. So a friend of mine got me into computer games. So I worked for a number of years uh, doing graphics. 
for low-end computer games back when they only had 32 colors. <laughs> and uh, eventually we worked our way up to CD-ROMs and high-resolution graphics and uh, flying CG. And uh, that was just about the time that um, they sent me off to uh, study at, uh, at college, study filmmaking for some interactive movie stuff that they wanted to do. And I enjoyed it so much that um, uh, I decided to leave video games and I came down to Los Angeles and, and started an entirely new career, basically started over from the ground up. So uh, you, had, then, you had a couple of decades in various industries before you started with, uh, with comic books pretty seriously, it sounds like. Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, I did. I had a I had a full career. I was an art director in, in uh, for Electronic Arts, working on John Madden football and and NHL hockey and a bunch of other games for various different platforms. So yeah, yeah, I had a, quite a career there before I came here and started it over. I have a vivid memory of uh, in the in the eighties. I'm 44. In the eighties, my mom getting us the first Super Mario Brothers and sitting on over my shoulder and going, "Look at the graphics on this; they're amazing." And now I yeah. watch my children play. It's a it's a different playing field now. <laughs> it, yeah, it really is. Uh, and boy, there's nothing that makes you feel older faster than when you tell people, "I used to play Pong." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, and then, how did you start in comics? Uh, I was working in animation. I was working on King of the Hill, and and in television, you have periodic hiatuses where you you can be off for as long as three or four months between seasons, waiting for the green light from the network. So, uh, a bunch of us. There's an, uh, a disproportionately large number of comics fans that work in animation. So we used to talk about it all the time. We had regular Comic Book Wednesday where we would all go to the comic shop together and then go out to the local Mexican restaurant to have uh, lunch together. Um, and so we had been talking about it for a long time and I kept saying we should use our skills as storytellers in comics and bring some of that to comics. So I started doing a sample comic to show them what I would do. And I was just for fun, I was playing with CG and I did a, uh, uh kind of a sample, uh, war machine comic. And, um, after I finished it, I showed it to my friends. They all really liked it. And they said, oh, you should send it in. Marvel's going through this big regime change. Joe Casada had just taken over. Bill Jemis was there. And so I just sent in a, the, 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 it was like a half a comic that I had done uh, of War Machine. And I sent it in and Joe Casada really liked it, got in touch with me, asked me if I wanted to do some work for them. So I started doing Electra and um and u.s war machine at the same time sure yeah yeah this is uh right as the century was changing 2000 2001 yeah. right yeah 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 exactly and it was uh um and it wound up becoming um there was such a long hiatus it wound up becoming more my full-time job than animation did so i at, at one point i had been sending in war machine and the office that did war machine was uh, shared by the X guys. So the, uh, there was Ralph Macchio and, and then there was Mark powers and Pete Franco and, and, uh, Brian Smith. And they, they just, you know, shared what they got back and forth. And the, the X guys liked what I was doing on war machine. It was about the same time that Joe Casey was leaving. So they asked me if I wanted to step in and take over on Kenny. And I was, <laughs> I thought, are you out of your minds? <laughs> but they really liked the writing. So they actually wanted me to be a writer and not an artist on War Machine. So um, it's almost hard for people. I mean, I, I'm Kenny, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, for both, I'm sure. It's yeah. almost hard for people to go back and realize how different the world was just 20 years ago. And I think yeah. one of the ways to do it is to consider television. Uh, 2000, 2001 was kind of the era of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Beverly oh, yeah. Hills, 
Beverly Hills 90210. This is even pre like Grey's Anatomy, which has been running for nearly 20 years now. Uh, storytelling was different back then than it is now. Very. The expectations of the industry have changed a lot. Uh, and it's an interesting thing to kind of put into context. I think often on my podcast, we're often reviewing the 60s books. And in order to truly appreciate the early work, you have to go back to the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, we're currently in 1969 in our reviews. And I'm like, the world hasn't even landed on the moon yet. Like, that's how far yeah. we have to go back to enjoy these. Yeah. Uh, your run on X-Men, I think by many, is considered to be one of the most controversial runs for, oh, for some of those reasons. Uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. About my th uh, thoughts on... How about your, your run being considered controversial. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't honestly, I've given a lot of thought over the years because it, you know, it was a strange, chaotic period in my life. I mean, there were people that loved what I was doing and there were people that passionately hated what I was doing. I would get <laughs> some of the strangest convention experiences of my life while I was writing X-Men. Uh, people would literally come up to me and, and yell at me because I made them quit reading, mm. uh, stop collecting X-Men or Uncanny or, or whatever. And all, all I could do was say, well, I, I, I saved you six bucks a month. <laughs> I mean, what, do you, <laughs> what do you want me to do? So, uh, but at the same time, I would get um, daughters would come up with their mothers and their, their, the, the daughters had not been reading X-Men and had started reading it and really enjoyed it and then got their moms to read it. And the moms had never read comics at all and were reading comics for the first time. So there was this weird kind of split. So I spent a lot of time after leaving comics trying to figure out what had happened. Cause obviously I was, you know, you, you go through an experience like that and you're not, <laughs> it leaves you not entirely anchored in, in your confidence and your talents and your abilities. So what I realized had happened is that, uh, and and because you're you're into the history side of things, this this will probably make some sense to you. But you also have to kind of look at comics from the perspective of they were created for impulse buyers and general audiences in Seven Elevens and supermarkets. Absolutely. To, they went to a very specific core audience only, and that specific core audience became the driving audience. Um, you know, it's kind of like when people talk about politics and they talk about you're, you're playing to your base, you're always playing to the, you know, sort of the, the most passionate version of, of your political supporters. It's kind of the same way in comics. So I realized that what was happening is that I was writing what I considered to be general audience material, stuff that would have worked on television, at least from, from my point of view. And it was, and, but the, the fans are looking for something really different. They know, they don't want to have the characters re-explained to them. They have their personal favorites that they really like a lot. They're looking for uh, the characters to take their powers and, and take them to the next level, whatever that next level is going to be. They want to see them re-encounter their favorite old villains again, uh, and not necessarily in some, some new and disturbing kind of way. A lot of them are not really into more emotional stuff. I remember when I wrote Fall Down, Go Boom, uh, the story where North Star comes onto the team. Somebody actually got angry at me because I, I I made them cry at the end of that story, and and I mean if you if you watch your average emotional television episode, uh, you know like I don't know Ghost Whisperer or something like that, yeah, you know the whole point is to get your audience emotionally engaged in television, whereas a lot yeah. of yeah. 
lot of the fans in comics are are less interested in the emotional engagement. They're looking for the you know the power fantasy, the the excitement, seeing the the big fights and all that stuff. It's more of an adrenaline rush. It's more like the difference between car chases and and romantic comedies. You know, you're you it's just a different audience. So I was writing for the wrong audience in a lot of ways. I think um, they were they were looking to expand it beyond. Uh, beyond the market that it was, but the, the, the business of the market didn't really support that because comic shops are destination based and, and they had started getting started at that point. Also, we were getting into, excuse me, where they were, where trades were becoming the thing. Everybody was, they wanted, we wanted five issue arcs so that you could get the trades out because the trades were selling to people who were infrequent buyers, people who would come into a, a, like a Barnes and Noble, uh, and pick up, they were looking for an entire run of something as opposed to picking up the individual pamphlets every single Wednesday. So, so it's really, it's just a matter of you're writing for, for two very different audiences. And it's not like, so I couldn't even look at it and say, well, well, they had no business being angry at me. Well, no, they're looking for something other than what I'm offering. So that's, that's fine. I have no problem with that. We, we live in a, we live in a world with, uh, we live in a world with Twitter now. And I know yeah. a lot of creators refuse to engage on Twitter because comic book fans who have big opinions can be so cruel to the point of death threats, or I think they forget yeah. to humanize the person behind things. Uh, this is a little bit pre-Twitter. Uh, we're kind of in the early days of, of MySpace and <laughs> things like that back then. But there were, uh, but there was a, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There was a, there were a couple of websites that it was it was essentially the start of all of that. Yeah. yeah. So there were there was like some very uh, strongly supported X fan websites, and they would ask me to come and post things there, and and it was just dogpile. And I I got death threats. I got people threatening the lives of my children. Uh, it was uh, it was grim. It was really grim. And people who my family members who were starting to get into the internet a little bit were, oh, you know, Chuck's writing comics, I should look into that. And then they were horrified by what they were coming across on online. So um, that was, the, I think, and Chris Claremont used to refer to me as the, hey, you're the most hated man in comics. And I said, yep, thanks, I know. Um, and it was, and that was because it was that, it was, I was like the first, I don't know, alpha subject. I was the test subject that went out into the, this new, uh, domain of the internet, I think. And then I, now it's, it seems like a lot of people are getting that same kind of treatment. I can remember engaging in the early 2000s with uh, with a few writers over MySpace or America Online as people started to create those online presences. And suddenly people can grab a keyboard and uh, and type out some sort of awful message and then maintain anonymity, which is what we call trolling now, right? Yeah. Uh, but then there's the in-person stuff too, the people coming up to you at cons and, and getting <laughs> angry in your face. That's a rough thing. And you see people who are passionate, but there's no excuse for just people behaving terribly towards someone who's writing stories. Uh, I'm I'm super sorry to hear you've had a lot of that experience. I hope it's been countered by the joy of people remembering a lot of your favorite characters and, and, uh, and beloved storylines at the same time. Uh, but that must've been a really rough thing to go through, man. It was uh, it was exhausting. Um, you know, my family wound up hating it. My wife wound up hating comics um, and wanting me to get out and never go back. Um, so uh, yeah, it was it was tough. But um, but at the same time, it was a it's a medium that I love. I'm very passionate about. Obviously, I'm back in in it now doing Edgeworld. But the uh, um, the it's 
it's sort of a two-edged sword like anything that you love i guess it's got it's got its it's got its excitements and it's got its pains yeah i uh i yeah we, i think we'll change the subject but i <laughs> I, I i hope i hope we can capture for listeners like people who write these things are are real people. I read a I read a book by Lindy West once called Shrill. If anyone hasn't read it, uh, it's it's a it's a phenomenal book. She tells a story about uh, uh, she is a using her terminology a fat woman who is writing about uh, the way the public often treats fat people, and she wrote a pretty strong piece about the way uh, men or male comedians will treat uh, females in their jokes and how they are constantly uh, um, using rape as a as a kind of joke or a, a tagline and how it's really not very funny. She tells a particular story in her book about one man who was just a huge troll and was giving death threats and even created an account pretending to be her deceased father in order to antagonize her and was saying these awful things. And she found out who it was and engaged with him and released an NPR piece where she's talking to oh. this man uh, and and it really humanizes the way people go through these really rough things. People are people on the other side of that. And imagine what it would be like to get death threats toward your children. What a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, as as time has passed, uh, even talking about this must be a little bit painful, but I, I hope that you are finding healing. And as people are looking back on your run with a different light, I hope that you are uh, you're able to find some joy in all of that too. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I, I am. I mean, you know, when I would get those those people coming up to me at cons that hadn't read comics before or had given up on X Men, those were some great moments. I mean, I enjoyed those a lot, and I really and even now I, I run into people all the time. Uh, even that, I mean, uh, let me let me even go back all to then that the the hatred and the anger was so prevalent that even fans were aware of it so fans would come up to me at, at my table at cons and and they would come in and just sort of really quickly lean in and say i actually really like your writing and then they would run off because they they didn't want to get attacked and hassled i mean and that is i mean you're, you're a therapist so you understand there's yeah, yeah it's the nature of the bully the bully does those things because people don't want to engage and they don't want to fight back so there were so many people that were trying to fly under the radar that didn't speak out publicly but i've run into all it feels like i've run into all of them since then they come up to me all the time and tell me how much they loved uh sammy the fish kid and and the juggernaut storyline um yeah, yeah and uh how much they how passionate they were about um various different things or various different stories that i wrote um i get uh i get comments all the time about the gambit ultimate x-men story that i wrote yeah um, yeah so there are so the, it's no there are absolutely there are tons of positives i mean i would never i would never have come back if it was nothing but negatives i mean it's a, it is a terrific and wonderful experience i just got a text from a friend of mine i said hey you want to get together for coffee and she goes yeah how about blah 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 let's go to San Diego. She goes, and by the way i loved edge world she just like all caps <laughs> and i thought wow so so yeah the experience is, is terrific it's really wonderful and i, I was just talking to to um i think some friends of yours uh, a couple of days ago and they were they were just wonderful. I mean, it was just really, really a positive experience. So I'll, I'll take it. I'm very happy to, to engage in that. And I, and, and the Scott McLeod said this to me once at a convention and I'll, I'll take this uh, over anything else. He said, when you write what is important to you, you wind up with fans that you like to talk to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's been true. 
You know, the people who like my writing, I love having conversations with them. Sometimes we'll want, you know, they'll come up to me at a table, we'll have a great conversation. I'll say, hey, you want to go grab some lunch? So we'll go actually uh, grab something to eat and have a conversation afterwards. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm lots of positive experiences, lots of great ones. So I have about 75 questions for you. <laughs> I'm right in. <laughs> we will not get to all of them, but I, uh, I think it's really valuable for people to hear your voice on this subject and uh, to hear the pain and the healing that are present. The X-Men, ironically, have always been a refuge for people seeking safe space, right? That's what the comics are about. And you, uh, well, putting this in context, we're, we're talking about the introduction of the internet. This is a, a post 9-11 world. Uh, the, the industry is changing. The leadership is changing. They're trying new things on the books. Uh, this is an era of X-Men coming out of uh, the the playing field had just been really massively shuffled post kind of age of apocalypse and all of the different things that were happening. I'm picturing you sitting down and looking at a list of all of the available X-Men characters and thinking, who do I want to focus this particular book on? Knowing there's five other books out there, right? Uh, there's Generation X members that are suddenly available to grab, Chamber and Husk. Uh, there are uh, Havoc is freshly out of the Mutant X universe. Polaris is freshly out of the Genosian decimation story during uh, New X-Men. Uh, how did you select the cast that you wanted to work with? Uh, Angel, Nightcrawler, uh, you, you, have a, you have a unique team of, of people that are assembled for this time, uh, time period. Yeah, um, it really did wind up being fairly eclectic mix um but uh and i and i wish i could say i i chose them you know for certain reasons i wanted i had a kind of an idea that i wanted a bit of a balanced thing i wanted the powerhouse and i wanted the sensitive character and i wanted you know various different things in there so um but the com it, the the cast really came out of having a conversation with mike martz i was the third guy in the totem pole so you know grant morrison got his pick and then um uh who was the other writer uh uh, there were oh Greg Rucka was it Greg was our was it Greg Rucka was the other writer or? I don't recall I apologize yeah. no it's okay I don't I obviously I don't remember either um, it but uh, but they had their cast already set up so they so Mike said well here's kind of who's left over and though you know I wanted a, a couple I was a big fan of the the Claremont Cockrum Claremont Byrne era. So I, in, a, in a way, I, I, I wanted to kind of go back in that direction a little bit. Sure. So I wanted Colossus and I wanted Kitty Pride and I wanted a lot of those characters, but, um, but none of them were available. So that's actually how I wound up with Juggernaut. Um, I had been doing a lot of research and I'd read J2 and I thought, you know, actually, I think I could really have a lot of fun with this, with sort of bridging that gap between uh, him being a villain and him being a loving father. So, um, so I asked if I could have Juggernaut. I asked if I could have uh, Angel. Angel was available. Uh, Nightcrawler was already on the team, I think. So I wound up with him. But I asked if I could get him out of the the priest collar. Uh, yeah, I didn't want him to be a priest. Um, and uh, and and then they asked if I would put North Star on the team because they really like North Star a lot. And I said, yeah, I would love to. So uh, and Husk was available. And then it was funny because. Again, early stages of the internet, I started reading on this X site that they had asked me to kind of be a part of that people were saying, oh, he's only picking the pretty characters. He doesn't like any of the weird characters. And then on page one, there's Sammy the Fish Kid. So um, so it really had nothing to do. You know, I was making my choices based on uh, kind of who was available and what I thought I could do with them. And um, 
let's start with Juggernaut. I uh, yeah. I'm a huge Juggernaut fan. Juggernaut, prior to your use of him, uh, has mostly been portrayed as the villain. A lot of his storylines revolved around him trying to get a present for his husband, Black Tom. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he smashes stuff and he always goes back. But you found a sympathetic take on this character while keeping him very, very complicated. And uh, you you shook him up and you changed him. A a every story from Juggernaut since he joined the X-Men on, people try to get him back into that villain role and he ends up back as a hero over and over and over again. Interesting. Uh, what was it that compelled you about this character? Uh, he's uh, he's fascinating during your run. He's uh, there's a lot of my favorite things about your run, but your use of Juggernaut is is my top favorite. I think he's phenomenal during your time with him. Oh, thanks very much. I really liked him. I I, I really enjoyed writing. I mean, I enjoyed writing all of them, but I really enjoyed him a lot. Um, he wound up being very kind of personal because he he was very similar to my relationship with my dad. So um, I was able to kind of pull on a lot of that and and uh, some therapy that I had gone through dealing with some of those issues and. Um, and, uh, having him bond with Sammy was, uh, was sort of a way of getting him to kind of bond with his own inner child in a way. Uh, you know, like this, it, it was, it was very intentional to have scenes like when he's playing catch with Sammy and they're talking about, you know, the, the various hot girls, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, all of that stuff was, was geared towards juggernaut, not just Sammy finding somebody to bond with, but juggernaut finding somebody to kind of bond with, because he, in a lot of ways, he doesn't fit with the intellectual set of the X-Men. You know, he's, he's kind of a bruiser. He's, he's a sort of a thoughtful guy. And he, in some ways he's been wronged, you know, Xavier comes in and he becomes the, the, the favored son. And, uh, he's the, he's like the better brother. And, and he, so he winds up jealous and, and upset about a lot of things. And in some ways he had reason to, because his dad treated him differently. So I loved getting delving into that. Uh, obviously you're delving into it in a way that you can still wind up having, you know, big giant, uh, super powered battles. So it's very much a subtext that kind of runs through things, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed him. I, I, I hated the, I, we, Sammy was essentially created to die. Uh, we always knew that he was going to get killed at some point, And that was going to be the trigger that sort of got juggernaut to really go, um, over to the to, to, to the light side as opposed to the dark side and to finally make his break from his husband uh so he uh he was um it was he was a plot device in a way that i that i wound up falling in love with and i i, I myself actually hated having to kill him off when i finally did i kept trying to figure out a way to make it work without doing that but we had planned for it it was sort of um kind of set up that way so uh, so, I, I mean, I got to ask really quickly, did you view Juggernaut's connection to Black Tom as a uh, as a gay relationship at the time? I did not, actually. Uh, um, I was actually, I'm just, I was uh, playing off what you just said. Um, I haven't read comics since then, so I don't know. Did he, did he actually, did it have to be that? They've never come out. I just, uh, I just interviewed Tom Brevoort a few weeks ago, and I'm like, you know, Juggernaut's husband, Black Tom, and he's like, yeah, they're just common law, but he's, I mean, he's joking, too. They, they yeah. I don't think, uh, I don't think they've ever revealed it, but it does seem to be subtext that's present. <laughs> if, you, oh, see. if you go back and read the stories, it's interesting. Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. See, I was going, I was looking at more, it actually makes more sense. And I wish I'd thought of it, but I didn't. No, it was actually based more in, um, uh, I was thinking of him more as the actual continuity that they had with J2, where he winds up getting married to a lawyer and, and they wind up having the next generation of juggernaut. So um, I hadn't considered it that way. And then, you know, and going back to the time and, and context, 
it was a bit revolutionary to have North Star on the team. So uh, thinking about other characters being uh, gay or trans or bi or whatever was it, it's like it didn't come up a lot. We didn't think about it consciously a lot. Um, so uh, uh, and you know, shame on us in some ways for for doing that. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you, you know, I uh, we wrote I wrote that fall down go boom story where um, uh, uh, North Star comes onto the team and and, and we got hate mail. You know, yeah. there were a lot of very angry people. So it was a different time. It was a very so different I wanna time. I wanna go to North Star next. With Juggernaut focusing for just a moment, you you give us the story and you're referencing here of, of Samuel Pear, who is called Squid Boy or Fish yeah. Kid a couple of times, who Same. is a, a young mutant teen with uh, an unfortunate mutation of kind of looking like a fish. And he's abused by his father and he's bullied uh, and his parents take him to Xavier's school for what's meant to be protection. And he forms this bond with Juggernaut, who seems to see a younger version of himself because he was the kid who was often bullied or beat up. Uh, Then uh, Sammy gets sent back to his parents in Canada where the bullies start picking on him again. And there's there's a moment where he stands up to the other kids and he says, I'm the Juggernaut. I'm going to I'm going to fight you back. This is a kid previously before joining Xavier's school that had uh, snuck a gun into his bag and was full of rage. Uh, We also get some incredible context of the relationship between Charles Xavier and Kane Marco, where, uh, you know, they, they have kind of this bonding moment of your father, Juggernaut, was bad to both of us. Um, But then Professor X lets Sammy go. He ignores the fact that this kid is in an abusive home. He sends him back and Juggernaut's got to be the one that goes and saves him. Ultimately, Black Tom, who has gone insane, kills Sammy in an attempt to kind of get Juggernaut's attention. And it does not end well for Black Tom at that moment. But it's a very sympathetic story of of loss and strength and resilience uh, and anger and what it's like to go through trauma. Uh, it's it's uh, it's my favorite Juggernaut story, I think, if I have to choose one. And there, there's seven or eight that I really love. He's a he's a beloved character for me. But uh, it's it's a powerful story, uh, and you took your time with it. it. It was stretched out over a couple of years. It's very tragic. Uh, Sammy dying on the page is just a horrifying thing to to witness. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on the story you were trying to tell there. And by the way, Chuck, I really appreciate someone who does their homework. You had looked into Juggernaut's whole history. You read every appearance <laughs> in the uh, in the trial of the Juggernaut that you did. You reference every crime he ever committed. And I'm like, oh, this is a guy who knows his stuff. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on that dynamic or relationship with uh, with Chuck and uh, Juggernaut and Sammy kind of as the triad there. Um, you nailed it pretty well. I mean, that was exactly what we were setting up. Uh, I mean, these were conversations with Mike Rach and Mike Martz, um, uh, the two editors at the time who I you know, adored. They were terrific to work with and very supportive of what we wanted to do. And, and you know, when I said, look, this is what I want to set up, they said, let's go for it. Let's do it. Uh, Sammy was intended to be what you call the uh, the viewpoint character or the uh, um, entry entry level focus character where you're you're this is somebody who's new and is learning about the x-men at the same time that a new reader would potentially be doing so he's the questions that he's asking might be the questions that a new reader would ask so um that's you you create a character like that intentionally but he was also intended to be this character that transitions juggernaut from one side to the other absolutely so so we looked into the you know he he was abused by his father abused by in in his neighborhood he was also it's very core to what the x-men is is these people that feel 
outsiders and ostracized have a home and a place to go. Um, what I tried to show with Xavier though, was that he was, and, and the, like you mentioned the, the point that, that they, um, that Xavier doesn't go to, to get Sammy out of that situation. Um, uh, also this was a transition period between is this, is what he's going through abusive behavior or does he just have a strict father? And, the is, does Charles Xavier have any legal rights to go in and have and to remove a child that is not his when the parents want them? No, he really doesn't have the right to do that. So Charles works, it tends to work within the confines of the law. And that's the difference in some ways, the difference between him and Juggernaut. Juggernaut is perfectly okay working outside the law. Hmm. So he wants, Sammy's in trouble. He's going to go get Sammy. Um, in, in, in retrospect, I'm, I don't know if I explained it clearly enough, but I, I didn't want Xavier to come across as heartless or not wanting to do something or get involved. But in some ways, I think he, uh, the, the idea was that he understands what Kane is going to do and he's okay with letting Kane go and do it. Um, just sort of like the, the under the radar kind of thing. Like you do, you do you, and I'm not going to get in your way. There's an element to Charles Xavier where he seems to prioritize the pretty or the passing mutants, the ones that can fit into the public with rare exceptions like Nightcrawler. Uh, and he often leaves the others, uh, you know, Cerebro can detect anybody, but he's only recruiting certain students. The Morlocks are left in the tunnels to fend for themselves, right? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's an element of that where I think he has the kind of the greater good in mind and and yeah. anyone else is kind of necessarily cast aside. Uh, and that's not outright stated in your story, but I think that's something consistent with his character uh, along the way. Uh, let's let's talk North Star for a minute. Uh, sure. Again, this is an era where we did not see a lot of out gay stuff in any form of any entertainment. Uh, uh, North Star came out in the mid 90s after he'd been hinted at being gay for a long time. Uh, during his uh, run on Alpha Flight, uh, right at the end, they kind of let him finally come out of the closet. Uh, this is, again, referencing Buffy the Vampire Slayer. This is all also around the time when uh, when uh, Buffy's character Willow and her girlfriend Tara had their kind of first on-screen kiss, Pedro was on the real world for, <laughs> for anyone oh, who knows yeah. their gay history. Uh, and this is kind of AIDS era, right? Like it's, yeah. it's early 2000s. We're still in this space where uh, where telling queer stories in comic books was very controversial. Uh, tell me about your your uh, use of North Star. And uh, I, we're, we'll, we'll talk more queer legacy in a little while, but, uh, but he was great. I also am particularly fascinated by his dynamic with Iceman in your comics, which we'll get to in a second as well. Okay, uh, but, sure. but tell me about North Star. Um, North Star, uh, North Star was interesting. He was, he was a character that ha was incredibly popular um i think obviously because um because of the 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 overall approach of what the x-men is about about tolerance and understanding so um mike had said how would you feel about writing north star stories and i said yeah i'd love to um can i do this can i do this and he goes yeah go for it mike was if not, nothing else if he, he was the the most supportive editor i think i've ever worked with him and and mike rage and uh so um uh, I did the fall down, go boom story where, you know, the, 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 the kid is a bit of a homophobe and in the middle of the story, he kind of has a freak out, you know, and they were okay with letting me do that. It was all fine. Um, then the, uh, um, the Iceman story, um, you know, which honest to God, Sean Phillips just drew that last expression on his face, uh, where he, where Annie asks him, 
do you, do you like him? And he just has that sort of like nervous, shy, like, I don't want to tell you whether I do or don't, but I do. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Sean was just amazing. Is, is just an amazing artist. I assume he's still working, but, um, uh, but there, uh, but the, the idea was with, with North star was once he, we got, he got on there, a lot of it was his, his personality and his relationship with the other people in the school. And particularly with Annie, who they were both sort of two new people and she had gotten to know him because he spent a lot of time in the infirmary. Um, uh, because, uh, he was, I, I was able to base him a lot on a very dear friend of mine who gave me my big career break, uh, when I first started working in, in, uh, video games, uh, he and I became, he was my art director for, at a company called, uh, uh, Mediagenic, which was uh, the version of Activision before it became full Activision. And um, he was, uh, he hired me. Um, he gave me an opportunity, gave me a computer to play with, hired me two weeks later. And then he and I became best friends and, and workout partners and, and hung out all the time. And, and we would have these terrific conversations. He was the, uh, the one of the few openly gay men that I'd known um, and he would talk about his life and he would share with me and he was, he would surprise me with, like, I remember talking about this one guy that we worked with and I said, God, the guy is such a dick. And, and, uh, and, uh, and my friend Steve said, uh, he said, yeah, but I'd fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> and it would always throw me when he would say stuff like that. And, and, um, so, so I wanted to take some of those aspects of Steve's personality and things that he talked about, you know, the idea that he could be that, like the idea that he could be attracted to a straight man who wouldn't reciprocate and he would just not say anything about it. That I, that was to me a a fascinating dynamic that I wanted to explore. So, so it was in a lot of ways, like I talk about Annie being a love letter to uh, uh, single mothers because my mother was a single mother where um, North star in some ways was a love letter to Steve, you know, and, uh, and uh, thank you for all that you did for me. Here's a character that I'm basing in a lot of ways on you. So um, North star uh, did not get a lot of playtime after kind of you brought him in initially and he's had yeah. that kind of big intro, but then didn't have a lot of play with the team afterward. Was there a reason for that? The reason was that I didn't know how to um, integrate him in as well as I needed to. Um, And there was also, um, it's writing, writing 22 page comics is, is difficult to fit a lot of stuff in. It comes out to about an 11, 11 minutes of a half an hour episode. So 11 minutes to 17 minutes of a half an hour episode. And so um, you just can't cover a lot of material in 22 pages. And, And when you've got, 10 different characters, you wind up shifting around uh, all the time, trying to, you know, answer one question or another. And there were a lot of other stories that we had already talked about that we all wanted to get to. There was obviously the juggernaut threader that was running underneath. Um, and then other people would use a character and change them in some way in a different comic. And then you kind of had to adapt and adjust to what they had done. Like I had to do with, with, uh, um, uh, uh, God, the name went right out of my head. Um, Magneto's daughter. Laris. Uh, yeah, Laris. Thank you. Laura. <laughs> You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's early over. It's early here on the West Coast. Um, so uh but you wind up do you know, you you, you you're you're given that character, you're gonna be able to put her on the team. You're talking about having a big wedding episode, 
and uh and then grant morrison makes her insane and walks her into the middle of a radioactive lake <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so you kind of have to adjust on the fly with those sorts of things so uh and north star was i think at that time was also being considered for a reboot of alpha flight and so um so there was like you know okay don't do too much with him don't change too much with him so it it just it he winds up being a character who winds up being on the sidelines, you know, more than you really wanted him to be. So was ice. Uh, well, I, in my mind, Iceman was clearly portrayed to be gay in your run as well, but very self-hating and very closeted. Was that your take on Iceman? That was my take on him. Yeah. Where did you get that from? Uh, just conversations with Steve. He would talk about, um, about people that were, um, uh, you know, wouldn't support gay causes, uh, wouldn't be open about things that were too afraid. Um, and, and he said he understood it, he got it, but it still bothered him, um, particularly when they got hostile. And, uh, so, um, I just, it was something that I hadn't even really thought about. I hadn't thought about it as a, you know, it's not, it's not my life. It's not my culture. So, um, he would bring these things up. And for me, it's all about sort of the drama and the dynamics yeah, and at yeah. some point, I really wanted to have that sort of confrontation between the two, between North Star and, and Bobby. Like, you're stop hating yourself so much because that anger is spilling out into the rest of the world. You're wind up, you just wind up hating everybody. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, and North Star would be able to speak to that as somebody who's openly gay and had been for a long time so well and i've known funny. i've known a lot of gay men who are aggressively straight in an effort to kind of blend in the world has changed since about 2015 but iceman still didn't I, you you wrote an iceman he came out 10 or 11 years after your your stories with him yeah uh but a lot of people had seen him as gay all along i recently got to interview jmd mateus who wrote the iceman limited series in the 80s yeah. And to me, it was so clear that he was writing a gay Iceman. But he told me, like, nope, I just was writing a, like a, a fun guy. <laughs> like, and I'm like, what? Because you read it and it's just the subtext is so clear. Oh, um, that's funny. But you're one of the first storytellers that gives us kind of a clearly closeted Iceman, uh, which helped pave the way for him coming out. And of course, he's a gay icon now. <laughs> well, awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Um, and, I, you know, and some of that too also has to do with uh, Marvel as a company at that stage wasn't sure whether they wanted to go that far with it you know i mean now i've heard that like superman is coming out and so there's, there's, there's a son of superman who has come out as bisexual yes yeah. oh i see okay so whereas back in the day nobody wanted to take those kinds of risks i mean when i was writing superman we talked about making him vegetarian and they said no absolutely not so um, you know, there are just certain things that they don't want to do for the, from the marketing aspect of, well, is this going to hurt our franchise or is this going to be, a, and those were a lot bigger concerns back then. I, there, I doubt they would be concerns now. Obviously they're not. Iceman is an icon. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. The, there's a, there's room for queer people in, uh, in our comics now, but, uh, every, every X-Men character is a little gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although I, it's funny. I think about like your, your comment about Charles Xavier, one of my favorite pages in, in the original giant size X-Men number one is, uh, Xavier sitting there enjoying the fashion show. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, maybe uh, I don't know what Xavier is into, but he's uh, he's definitely into the pretty. <laughs> he's into alien bird ladies. Occasionally, he dresses in bondage. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All kinds of stuff. Uh, one of the most uh, hard to read, and I and I mean that from an emotional place, one of the most hard to read scenes uh, is it, your, your X-Men 423, 424 story where the X-Men wake up and uh, some of their teenagers and other unnamed mutants have been crucified on the front lawn of their home. Uh, which uh, which left the character's skin uh, dead. Uh, Jubilee, who's the beloved character, has uh, spikes driven through her hands, uh, and they you know they bring her down from the cross. Uh, that's a gut punch of a story that I know is still very resonant for people. Now we're in an era of comics where mutants can be resurrected. Now I don't know if you're reading the Krakoan stuff at all. Uh, yeah. skin is skin is back to life, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> he got to return 20 years later. But tell me a little bit about that storyline. Uh, and speaking again as a queer person, this is an era of life where uh, gay people are being cast aside and killed in hate crimes, and and uh, that that story has a lot of resonance for people who've been disenfranchised. I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, and I think at the time there was also a story not uh, that had been around not too long before that, where uh, an African American man had been dragged to death behind a truck. So yeah, and this were, is uh, and this is four years after Matthew Shepard, who was hung on a fence and left to die. Yeah. Right, like the imagery yeah. is very present. And I, those kinds of things have always been really powerful to me because this is just a personal little story. But I was on the swim team when I was in high school, Santa Clara High. And there was one day when we were practicing on a Saturday morning and we didn't know it, but there, there, there was a, there's a, a chain link fence that surrounded the entire pool and it had these wooden slats in it so that you, uh, that people couldn't stand at the fence and like, you know, stare in. Um, and what we didn't know at the time was that a, a woman had been raped and murdered the night before and it was hanging mm. on that fence um, mm. uh, on the other side. So I, it's sometimes it's, it's, uh, so that's one of those things that stuck with me in that, you know, horrific events can be just right outside your window and you just don't even know that they're there um, uh, until suddenly it's just right there in your face. So, um, and you know, that was also, there was also um, some mandates coming down. I think Bill Jemis had wanted to sort of thin, thin out the, the Marvel X universe because he felt like it was reducing the specialness of the individual characters by having way too many X characters. Uh, and so, so there was a kind of a combination of things going on. Plus there was also the new movie was coming out and everybody thought it was going to be kind of a religion based thing um, because it was supposed to be based on God loves man kills or at least. Yeah. That. Yeah. Uh, we're talking X-Men two, which I think is called divided. We stand, which uh, takes up the William Stryker storyline uh, right. about Christians persecuting mutants. Right. Um, but they toned it way down for the movie. So we, we didn't know that though, because they were keeping all that stuff secret. We didn't have access to the scripts. So, so we decided to do God loves was our, what was it? I don't remember what the name of the story that you're talking about was, but we decided to do that with, uh, uh a group of, uh, villains that Joe Casey had created, um, with the, I think, uh, I think it's the church of humanity. If I'm church of humanity. Yeah. 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 So, um, so that's, that's, that's the origin of, of that. I did. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah. And yeah, no, you're, you're doing great there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a rough story to read. Even all these years later, I think of these characters having gone through that and what that does to a person and the type of trauma you live with. It really tells that story about the X-Men being, I mean, the X-Men are hunted, they're tossed in camps, they're attacked for who they are, but that story of just waking up and seeing that on your front lawn is a is a is a hard gut punch of a story to read for sure. 
I like to think of the X-Men as a show that has been running for 60 plus years. Every season you have a new kind of creative team coming in and they're trying to tell new stories and pick up on stuff and tie it back to the beginning. Uh, your, your character use of Angel is the perfect example of that. It ties him all the way back to the start. You give us stories about him being the billionaire guy uh, who has a big company and he doesn't know what's happening. You also give us stories where we play up on the heavenly imagery of him. He's the guy who can heal you, who shows up at the children's hospital and says, let me let me be here to help. Uh, tell me about your uh, your use of Angel. What do you like about this guy? Um, uh, I mean, it's from like we had talked about this, the this the Neil Adams run a little bit of uh, of the old X-Men. Um, and, and there was something just unbelievable about the way neil drew him yeah he's gorgeous he would do two page spreads just so that he could show uh angel's wings spread the entire distance of the of the of the two pages and um really really stunning so there was something just visually spectacular about him although he never seemed to be able to find a costume that kind of quite worked for him i I thought until he got i I like the black and black and white one that had the i guess the the angel circle on the top which was a i think it was a later neil adams version but um, but he, he never seemed to sort of find one that really worked for him. And, and, and when I started working on the X-Men, I had this idea for, um, uh, oh, it's so complicated and weird. I don't know if I should take the time to explain it, but, um, uh, <laughs> I'm here for it, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically, it was an angels versus demons thing. It was the, um, it's kind of where Azazel came from. Um, the idea was that, um, that, uh, Stephen Gould, a very famous, um, uh, scientist who studies uh, evolution had, had this theory called punctuated equilibrium, where he believed that, uh, evolution wasn't a linear progression. It was occasionally every once in a while, nature will just spit out a bunch of alternatives to see which ones survive. And it's not that they're, you're always moving in the positive direction. There could be 20 different things that come out that don't survive. And then you wind up with the one thing that does continue on, like, uh, you know, Homo sapiens sapiens is the, the thing that has managed to survive so far. But there was, you know, there were various different forms of man. Sure. So I was uh, I was looking at that and and uh, the, the book. of It's, uh, it's very much survival of the fittest. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I was looking at the book of Enoch where they were talking about angels and demons and and mating with women and all of that. And I thought, well, what if this is punctuated equilibrium that's been happening throughout um, the, the, basically the entire history of, uh, humanity on earth and that every once in a while they spit out all these very similar variations and those variations start to sort of pack and coalesce together. So we had an idea for a bunch of Wolverine characters and a bunch of angel characters and a bunch of demon characters, and that eventually they would sort of start to pair off. And then there would be a battle between, the angels and the demons and the, you know, and, and who was going to survive and, and be the next species that I sort of get into that a little bit with the dominant species with the wolves. Yeah. Yeah. With um, the, the, the Lobo. Uh, characters. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, but that was eventually supposed to be where we were heading with it all. But uh, like I said, you know, you've only got 22 pages and after a while, there's, there's just not enough room to get to everything that you want to get to. So, but that's one of the places that we were heading. That's interesting. There's there's a lot of that type of story in X-Men lore where you have kind of the hidden race or the offshoot of mutants. The Neo right. is a particularly famous one done by Claremont. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting thing. 
let's uh let's delve into i want to come back to angel in a minute but since we're on since we're on nightcrawler uh and i'm going to give it a little bit of context here i know one of the more controversial stories that you wrote or at least it was after the fact was uh was the uh nightcrawler's revelation as azazel as his father yeah uh and i think part of the reason it's really controversial for a lot of people claremont seemed to hint in a lot of his run that mystique and destiny were lovers and that uh, they were the parents of Nightcrawler. They weren't allowed to state that outright on the page a lot, but it was kind of a a hinted queer relationship that's there in the subtext. And I think for a lot of people, when Azazel got revealed as Nightcrawler's father, uh, two things happened. Number one, it took kind of that relationship away for some people, that Mystique-Destiny connection. And two, Nightcrawler was always the blue guy who looks like a demon, but was a priest. And to reveal he's actually connected to demons, I think was hard for some people to swallow as well. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, about that uh, that idea to, uh, and, and, and context on the flip side, the X-Men is full of just mysteries and things to explore, right? And one yeah. of them is Nightcrawler's parentage. All we knew is Mystique threw him off the waterfall and the rest had kind of been left unsaid so here's this story that's ripe for for farming but that uh that gets people invested tell me a little bit uh, about your your use of uh nightcrawler there okay well it um azazel is not a demon azazel is a mutant but he's a mutant from the a previous punctuated equilibrium where variations were being spit out so um and he drew he basically he was sort of the Magneto of his time. At least this is the way that we had uh, discussed him. So he had um, he had brought all of his crew together to fight against the angels or the somebody, uh, a group of other mutants who were led by um, an, an angel character that was going to be re- was to be revealed later. And the idea was that eventually the angels put the demons down. Um, but really what it was, was just a, it's a, a biblical battle between mutants. Yeah. I had never been aware of the mystique destiny relationship or the hints thereof. I, I maybe they were there and I just was too dense to pick up on them. But, um, but when we talked about it with the editors, uh, Mike Martz and Mike Rach, um, they, they were perfectly happy to do the Azazel storyline as long as, as long as Azazel was not actually a demon, as long as he, it was, uh, he, we we were at some point going to be clear with the idea that he was a mutant and that, so it meant that uh, Nightcrawler was still the child of two mutants. Um, but it the but it doesn't change, as far as I'm concerned, it wouldn't change the Mystique Destiny storyline anyway, because Mystique was one of those people who was clearly using what she had and not necessarily focused on what she was, who she was as a person or what she was. Sure, sure. She was, I like to to refer to it as a as a, a young person who's really attractive and and learns that they're really attractive and starts to use it as a weapon for a while until they until life kind of takes that out of them. Sure. So um, so yeah, I don't see any any I don't see any problem with that. I just had no idea about the mystique destiny relationship. But the the queerness of comics now, destiny is alive again, and she and mystique are married and living happily and doing criminal things as they're, they're part of the like mutant <laughs> government, and everybody loves them. And again, awesome. it's interesting because here's this story that you told that's ripe for the farming, and it just adds more to the complexity of Nightcrawler. You did handle it delicately. You you undid the Nightcrawler as a priest story. 
And then you gave us more of kind of Nightcrawler tortured with living with his legacy, finding answers out about himself, and then trying to move on from that. He's still the happy-go-lucky swashbuckler pirate guy, right? But uh, it's it's an interesting story, and it it stands up when you read it. Uh, I think just people who really connect to those characters, it was a tough one for them to read. Oh, I get it. I mean, there were a lot of people who hated what I did with Juggernaut that were diehard Juggernaut fans that thought that he was great as just the mean, angry bully guy. Um, and didn't want to see him altered. All of the story ideas that I came up with were about basically trying to challenge the characters on their more on their deepest levels. So Juggernaut is paired with a kid who gets abused because that's his deepest personal struggle. Um, uh, 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 North Star is somebody who never loses. So in his first story, he has to face losing. He it's a story where he can't win. Um, But in the process, he winds up making a deeper personal connection than he's probably made in his life in in many years. Um, uh, With Nightcrawler, it was he is a very spiritual, God-loving person, character. To find out that you may be the son of Satan is, is, you know, that's personally very deeply challenging. So everything, most of the stories that I looked for was all about raising the stakes as much as I could to try to find out what for on an individual personal level was the biggest, deepest struggle for them to have to go through. And that's where the, a lot of the story ideas wind up coming from. So I, uh, I, as you're talking about the angel story and building this kind of race of angels, I'm now tying that into She Lies with Angels, the story yeah. you did about uh, Paige Guthrie and Sam Guthrie's little brother, Josh, who has angel wings yeah. uh, and his, uh, his uh, illicit affair with the family rivals. Uh, I know another controversial story, although it stands up fine, I think, is uh, the, the romantic connection between Angel and Husk as a pairing, uh, which is an interesting thing. There's there's a scene that's comedic, but also like, oof, <laughs> as uh, <laughs> Angel and Husk are flying into the sky and her mother's below them and pieces yeah. of clothing start falling. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, about the uh, Josh Guthrie, if you'd like, and the, the, the Angel-Husk uh, combination. Um, that was, uh, that was all, of uh, again, it was a, a sort of a setup to, for some stories that were, I was planning to ho- or host hoping to be able to get to later, but, um, uh, uh, part of what I like to do with, at, at the time, there was just a lot of, I don't know, sexual shame. A lot of people that were really. It, we, they were, I felt like we were sort of in this bridge period where people were trying to be more positive about sex, but um, but there were a lot of people that were attacking them for being positive about it. And so I wanted to take um, take some characters and start showing that sexuality was a real part of their lives and that there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. But at the same time, you you can be a victim of your own hormones and you can go a little too far. Uh, I, I, yeah, I a lot of, a lot of your characters are really horny, <laughs> very horny. Um, but then, you know, that was based, these characters are all supposed to be in their twenties. And I, I all I have to do is think back to my twenties, uh, my thirties, my forties. Um, and some of my friends, that's pretty much all they ever talk about. So, um, the idea that it was never, ever dealt with in any way just seemed too utterly strange for me. And again, it's all about conflict. So you sometimes you give into your passions at the absolute wrong moment and you do something really embarrassing in front of your own mother. Um, but it also showed the mother isn't like 
screaming or angry, she's, she's like, okay, if that's what you're going to do, but I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not going to watch it happen. But then I really wanted to get to the story where Sam finds out about it. And then, and this, this tied into it. I was trying to get to a storyline where I once asked Mike Martz, what happens to, to all of husks husks after she sheds her skin. And he just kind of looked at me, he goes, I don't know. And I said, well, can I write a story where they like there's a guy that goes around collecting them he's, he's got them like, he's like saving them he's got some of them pinned on his walls and stuff and he goes "Ooh, that's super creepy yeah you can do that so i was leading towards a story where um she winds up getting kidnapped by this guy who um he just wants her to keep changing and try, he wants to see what he can do with her husks and he's collecting them and he's wearing them and it's, it's just really super weird and disturbing and creepy and it's getting to that really dangerous place and warren doesn't know where she is and he can't find her and he's desperate to get a hold of her so he goes to her mother's house and then sam shows up and starts kicking his ass it's like, who the hell do you think you are? You know, screwing my sister in front of my mother. Who are you? Sure, sure. And he can't stop Sam from beating him up long enough to explain to him, I'm looking for Paige right now and you need to stop doing this and help me. And so he finally does. He finally gets to that point and he's, and, and, uh, he finally gets to the point where he hears him, but he still doesn't like Warren. So they have to go off and find his sister. And in the process of finding her, he sees that he's and this this is sort of like based in my trailer park childhood he he has a hatred of of rich guys who take advantage of poor people and and so he has allowed that emotion to sort of tell inform him that you don't really love my sister and you shamed her and you're doing all this stuff and then when they finally find Paige and he sees the two of them together he realizes oh hell they really do love each other so that was the story that I wanted to get to eventually, but you know, instead it winds up just being this sort of sexual moment that everybody talks about. <laughs> there, and like, people will sometimes be like, "She's 18," and I'm like, "Yeah, but Warren's only 25 or something." Like you, yeah. you're not allowed to age the characters that much, uh, right. and they're clearly connected. Uh, I really enjoy the use of sex positive characters in the comics and you didn't do a lot with her, but your use of Stacey X uh, right at the beginning of your run is fun. What do you love about Stacey X? That that she was brash and open and that she was, she was, she was the thing that had, as far as I could remember, had never been a part of the X series. You know, it's like that open sexuality, even when Aurora is standing in her her jungle with the rains pouring on her and she's naked. That's just not it's not a sexual moment. It's more of a spiritual moment. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, there were a lot of times when, you know, with the, the, the Hellfire Club and all that stuff, that sexuality was sort of brought into the comics a little bit. But it was it always felt like it was a little sort of fringy and a little a little dark and kinky and you know it's like you talked about xavier's leather period <laughs> you know there was all of that <laughs> kind of stuff um i just wanted to get into characters who were positive about uh, I, and and this had to do with again if you want to get back into the history sort of the history of comics this was at a period when when there was adult comics that sort of taken off i was actually a, a, a part of that early on before uh before getting into mainstream comics and but a lot of the adult comics that it's sort of exploded onto the scene were just were sort of dark and angry and um it was almost like people felt guilty about it so they were saying oh look people who do it there's something wrong with them and so there was a big part of me that wanted to show that there are people that are interested in it that there's nothing really wrong with them they're sure. they're, they're just people 
So, um, so Stacy X was kind of that bridge character between I'm, I'm in a dirty world, but I'm, I'm also, I'm just a human being. And I, yeah. and she really liked Warren, really liked Warren, uh, and, um, really was hoping for some kind of relationship with him. But, you know, like, like girls that I've known in my life who were strippers in college and often had volatile personalities and temperaments, um, to, uh, did they, they, she didn't often know how to connect with him in a way that was, was positive. And that's where Paige kind of comes along. Paige comes along and she's more positive and she's open and she's got some of the qualities of Stacey X, but she's, but she's not over that far over. Um, and again, that was another thing that I was setting up where, um, Stacey X winds up leaving. And then later on, she comes back in a way that nobody ever expects. Um, there was going to be a storyline, a Mr. Sinister storyline where he really does go Joseph Mengele and he's got a camp, but it's like a, it's a, it's, it's a hell hole. I mean, mm. he's got one of the things he does is to just keep testing the mutants to see what their powers can do and how far he can push them. And so he's got, uh, uh, Warren staked out on the ground in the elements just to see how long he can survive without food in the open elements. And there's this lizard woman that keeps coming to him at night to, to feed him and give him water to try to take care of him um, against Sinister's wishes. And then uh, as the series goes on, she winds up saving his life. And we find out that it was Stacey X who had gone through a, a secondary. Fascinating. You, my favorite moment of hers, I mean, you give her a vulnerability, but she counters it with brashness. But my favorite moment of hers is she's kind of flipping through the photo albums of the prostitutes she worked with. Uh, and kind of remembering the human side of them and how they were all just happy to have a home and a, and a sisterhood. Uh, one of the characters she remembers is fat Nancy, if, if I'm remembering yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, she hasn't really been used a ton since your run with her. There, there's been a little bit of attention given to her on Krakoa, but I think, uh, I think your use of her is, is wonderful counterbalanced by kind of the innocence of nurse Annie who yeah. uh, has a coma patient she's fallen in love with. And is juggling uh, a life of adversity as a single mother and as a, uh, a an immigrant or a child of immigrants, uh, but struggling with her kind of her own mutant phobic uh, tendencies until she finds out her son is a mutant too. Um, the and then the soap opera of it all, right? Like yeah. Annie wants to marry Alex, who's marrying Lorna, who used to date Bobby, but he also kissed Annie. <laughs> North stars in the bed with a crush on him, and only Annie knows. Like the soap opera of it all is a lot of fun too. Um, oh, good, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I mean, that was fun for me too. It, <laughs> it was, uh, how do you remember uh, uh, Annie uh, as, as we as you as you think of her now? Uh, your use of this character, who got a lot of prominent attention in her run, what was she meant to represent? Um, yeah, actually it was funny cause my, uh, editor at, uh, DC comics at one point, he said, you know, I don't want to read the X-Men to read the, it's not, I don't want to read the Annie comic. I want to read the X-Men comic. And I went, oh, all right, point taken. Um, like she'd gotten a little too much attention. He felt she, she, he felt she had gotten a little too much attention. I, I, um, because I was raised by a single mother and often in, um, HUD housing where we were surrounded by single mothers. Um, I have a great admiration and respect for, for single mothers who yeah, I come from a single mom too. She's amazing. There you go. So, uh, so I probably gave her more attention than I should have. Um, uh, it's, it's also the reason that I created the Lionheart, the, uh, there's a character in the Avengers. Yeah. Lionheart. Yeah. The captain Britain character. Yeah. Uh, she was sort of my answer to the criticism of Annie. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll make her a superhero. 
And <laughs> and I I have a uh, it's okay if I write stories about her. Nobody's going to complain. Um, but uh, but uh, and Annie was also like I said about Sammy. She was initially created as a viewpoint character, but then I wound up kind of liking her and wanting to keep her around and, and write more about her. I think obviously because I you know that's a, an environment that I grew up in. So, um, but it, she also there's also um, the, anybody who watches soap operas, like I used to watch when I was younger, uh, they, they're all centered around a hospital because that's where the drama is, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you need a, you need a nurse, you need a hospital character, you need maybe even a doctor, you know, it would have been, a, uh, maybe making the mutants might've been a smarter move, but, um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm happy with the way she turned out. And I got to write her out of the series at the end so that nobody, you know, screwed with her too much after I was gone. They kept her safe. I've often wondered what happened to her ever since. Uh, I have uh, I have two more questions. I'm going to narrow it down to two. Sure. Uh, number one, uh, you uh, gave us the character Mama Max, <laughs> the Mama elephant, Max? the elephant headed guy who like spits acid. That was part of uh, Black Tom's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Do you remember Mama Max? You know what? I don't think I, I don't think I created him. I think that might've been Sal. Was that a Sal Laraka character? I think he might've just, yeah, drawn, put, he probably wanted to, I don't remember actually, but you know, I, I honestly, this is 20 years ago. So, you know, we're talking <laughs> memories yeah. fade. He, uh, he's an elephant headed guy who uh, is just one of the most bizarre mutants ever that shows up in X-Men 161 as part of Black Tom's Brotherhood. Uh, and uh, oh, he's, he's just such a weirdo, but I, I kind of <laughs> love him. I'm a little fond of him. <laughs> uh, my other question, you gave us the revelation uh, when Polaris first shows up in the comic, she's called the daughter of Magneto. They later retcon it and say he's not. Uh, but then you give us uh, Polaris kind of going through her Genosian trauma as she's coming out of all of that, we learned that Magneto actually is her dad. Uh, that was a big moment for her in the comics. Tell me a little bit about that uh, decision, if you recall. The, I mean, the, the, the decision was basically I wanted to, um, uh, I wanted to have that big moment. And it's funny, I, just, I started thinking about this uh, after this last conversation that I had. Um, but uh, I had with, uh, with Dayspring on Power of X Men. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you um uh the uh they were asking me about this and i i couldn't remember the, about the helmet but then then i remember now it, slowly it's been coming back to me that we wanted to do i mean we really wanted to draw that connection um really solidly uh, uh, we had a but mostly just for the the um the power aspects of it you know like um this is somebody we wanted people to understand how powerful and potentially dangerous she could be so um, we, uh, we drew that there, there was, there was talk back and forth about whether we should, you know, whether she was, whether we, she wasn't. And I said, look, that's obviously, it's going to be a lot more interesting, a lot. She's going to be seem, she's going to come across as a lot more powerful if she is than if she isn't. And so uh, particularly if we're taking her down this sort of dark path for a while where, you know, that Grant's got her on. Um, so ultimately we decided to do that. And then we had her build the helmet around her, uh, at the end of the wedding and, um, uh, that was all an intention to try. Part of it is that um, I, there weren't a lot of of great classic villains for me to use because everybody else had them. All the good ones. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you got to make your own. <laughs> I had to make my own. Yeah, I mean that's where that's in some ways that's where the kind of the dominant species whole idea 
started to evolve is because they said, well, we got Lobo. <laughs> and I went, okay, I'll see what I can do with Lobo. So, um, so Lorna was an attempt to sort of help to set up some, some really good solid villains of our own. Uh, Chuck, I think you're a phenomenal person. I, I want to kind of conclude with a personal story. And I shared this with you over email. I am a, I am a gay man. I didn't come out until my thirties. When I came out, I had a baby and a toddler. Uh, my husband and I are now raising them and they have both come out as queer as well. My, my oldest oh, wow. is gay. My youngest is non-binary. And uh, we, a couple of years ago are sitting down and watching Shira, which has queer characters all the way through. <laughs> And at the end, there's the Shira Katra kind of love connection, which changes the whole series. Uh, spoilers to anyone who hasn't seen Shira on Netflix. That takes me back to my own childhood first, where growing up in the, uh, I was born in 78. So growing up in the early 80s as the kid who played with He-Man action figures, yeah. uh, I also bought the Shira action figures. And I would play with the kids at recess and the girls would play Shira with me and the boys would play He-Man with me. But I got teased endlessly for playing Shira uh, and, and, you know, called a faggot and, and bullied for that. So as a queer dad with queer kids watching this show with this kind of queer story, uh, I didn't realize it until I reached out to you for an interview. But I'm like, oh, my God, Chuck Austin also did Shira. Uh, <laughs> so the queer representation in that, uh, it just was an incredible moment as a father uh, and as an out gay man. Um uh, that just it kind of changed to see that storyline uh, in a cartoon. And they have some of those stories in shows like Steven Universe and, and yeah. a few other modern cartoons that really give us uh, just complex queer characters in a cartoon form. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, Shira and that story that you told. It's beautiful. Well, it's very sweet of you to say this story that I told, but I I didn't tell it. I was the I was what I call a support producer where I was brought in to help uh and noel and the writers an entire an entirely woman uh based crew story uh, you were involved with the story i was involved <laughs> with, story i fully supported and did everything that i could to help them to make better um yes uh the um and if you if you actually go back the seeds are all there uh it was it was laid the, the pipe was laid as they say um, so you can see it all um, sort of developing from I mean, the prom episode is probably the clearest example of that where Katra dips Shira uh, yeah, during yeah. the dance. Um, but um, but those seeds were always being laid. That was always Noel's intent. We just didn't know if we were going to be able to do it, if if Mattel was going to allow us to do it, uh, if DreamWorks was going to allow us to do it. And so so the seeds were were set but it was left open that there that Shira would be essentially sexless you know that there would be no interest one way or the other by the end of the series um depending on what the owners of the property wanted and so um we had a conversation or and noel had a conversation with the head of dreamworks um margie cohen margie um uh, was terrific very supportive and said okay let's let's do it let's see what mattel has to say um, cause you know, it's their license. We have to do what they, they want. But, um, she said, I will support you if you guys want to do this. So Noel came in and said, you know, will you help me? And I said, absolutely. Let's, you know, I said, and I, and that's actually when I said, I said, well, we should really make sure that we start laying some pipe. And she just gave me this spark and I realized, oh man, you've laying pipe all the way along. You knew you were doing <laughs> she knew what she was doing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, uh, uh it, it Honestly, I didn't expect, you know, based on corporate money making and all of that stuff, I did not expect Mattel to say yes. 
but they came back to us and they said, absolutely go for it. And I will commend them up one street and down the next for taking that uh, leap and going in that direction and letting us go in that direction. Um, and the, and how do I feel about it? Ultimately, I'm incredibly proud. And it's one of those things where, yeah, you get people that are upset and angry about it. But I also had a cousin who I had no idea uh, had been closeted for many years, right. send me an email and say, uh, thank you for doing this. I wish I had this when I was younger. And I was, I, I just thought, we, we, we have to do things like this. We have to give kids support and understanding. And one of my, one of my best friends in the business, who's a showrunner, just sent me an, an email telling me that uh, one of his children is just um, changed her gender from female to male sure. at four and a half. So, um, so kid, kids need, and I'm, you know, I, I, I know about all of the, the the crazy people out there that are, you know, that they have their point of view about, they don't want this stuff in their X-Men comics, but this is where it needs to be. People need to see that, that heroes and real heroes that, you know, not just unique siloed individual heroes that are created for a specific audience, but people in the real world of heroes um, are, are coming all kinds in, in yeah. all um, shapes personalities, uh, genders, uh, uh, and sexuality, everything, all of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got your Stacey X and you got your page, you know, you've got your North star, you got your Iceman, you know, that's yeah. like, you've got, you, you need to have the polarity of, of everything. I, uh, I could say a lot in response, but I'll just say quickly, those who oppose these types of stories are those that would tell me my family is immoral and that we yeah. need to stay quiet about who we are and keep things behind closed doors instead of be proud. I, uh, I own a home with a pride flag hung on the front. And I'm not like a guy who, you know, talks about being gay all the time, but it's a big part of my identity because I had to fight so hard to be who I am. Seeing ourselves represented in storylines is crucial. And for so many years, Queer people were only shown as the villains, right? Disney movies where you've got Jafar and Scar and Ursula who are queer coded and meant to be evil and destroyed yeah. or they end in suicide or it's like the, the feminine best friend of whatever girl in the rom-com. And that's all we saw. We need to have complexity and representation. And I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be reading comics now that have, I mean, Superman's son is gay and or bi and Wolverine's son is by and like there's all these characters that are out and proud and showing complexity and it's it's a it's a it's a big difference um rather than having to read between the lines we can just tell stories about out queer people and it's so crucial and and all the straight people are still there too so those that are upset don't need to worry about it <laughs> yeah make up the majority yeah. Uh, Chuck, what an absolute honor to uh, to spend time with you today. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, yeah. For the listeners who can hear a puppy barking in the back, I'm puppy sitting. <laughs> <laughs> the dog is getting restless. So I apologize for the barks. Uh, Chuck, if you'd like to plug anything, uh, we're going to release this near the end of October. What are you working on now? And where could people find you if you want them to be able to find you online? Uh, I have, uh, I have a Facebook page that is, is essentially it's, um, it's not really a, like a, a family page. It's, it's more of a business page. So if sure. you want to friend me on Facebook, they, um, I will generally friend whoever asks. 
And uh, uh, at the moment, I'm working on stuff that I can't really talk about. It's yeah. NDAs. Uh, yeah, NDAs and, and you know, um, the, the various different companies that you're working for and everything is in, in you know, states of disarray. So, um, but the, uh, the Edge World of Trade came out, just came out. Uh, I'm getting some great response to that so far. Um, so if you like uh, science fiction action adventure series, then that's for you. We're doing another series uh, for comicsology that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Um, and, uh, and what else? I mean, a, a bunch of other stuff that I can't even tell you what they are. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, still work in animation too. So, well, I, uh, I vastly appreciate the gift of your time and talents today. Thank you for drawing on these old memories and, and telling big stories. If you're like me, my brain just kind of buzzes after interviews like this for a while, but I, uh, I, I genuinely appreciate your time and, and the stories that you told. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everybody. We'll see you back here uh, next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.